Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up later this half hour, I'll talk with Brianne Fannensteel. She's the Des Moines Register's chief politics reporter. And recently she sat down with Governor Reynolds, uh, spoke with Reynolds about the caucuses, uh, the governor's own influence on the national scene, what that all means for the future of our state. Um, I'll also ask her uh, about uh, the other likely GOP candidates that have begun uh, to visit Iowa. Then later in the hour, I'll talk with Iowa State University researchers about their project, uh, one that aims to grow crops. Uh, these are vegetables and fruits. Also raise bees uh, amid solar panels. Uh, we'll learn about uh, those unique plans uh, for a solar farm here in Iowa. To start, though, let's discuss some problems uh, at Iowa's care facilities, at some of them, uh, nursing homes. Clark Kaufman has been following this. He's deputy editor at Iowa Capital Dispatch. Hi, Clark. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Now, you've written a series of interesting in-depth articles over the past month or so, highlighting in some cases some very grave issues at these Iowa facilities. Let's go focus, uh, first of all, on your most uh, recent article, Three Iowa care facilities with a recent history of resident care issues added to a list. This is a federal list of the nation's worst nursing homes. Uh, before we have you name these three facilities added to the list, tell us uh, about this federal list and its purpose. Yeah, it, it's an interesting list. Every, every three months, the federal government updates what it calls uh, a special focus facilities list. And this is a list of care facilities nationally that are deemed to be among the worst in terms of serious recurring quality issues. Now, the the catch here is that there are only 88 nursing facilities on the list, and it's capped at that level. So each state has one or two slots that are are filled on the list. And uh, as some homes graduate from the list, Other facilities in that same state can take their place on there. And when that happens, they're subjected to increased oversight and assistance from the federal government to improve care. Uh, But what's happened is over the past several years is some homes languish on that list for four years or more. So even though the quality of care may be dropping at other care facilities, they're not getting that special focus from the federal government that's supposed to kick in. But, uh, but the one thing that the federal government does do is it does track which facilities have dropped in quality so far that they're deemed eligible for the list. So we track that very closely so we can at least get an idea of which care facilities are dropping in quality, even if they're not being subjected to any additional oversight. Yeah. So now tell us about the three Iowa facilities added to this federal list and where they are and why they were added. Yeah, the the first one uh, is Park Ridge Specialty Care in Pleasant Hill. Um, They've had a series of problems over the past year or two. Uh, Just last year, they were fined $178,000 by the federal government. Um, Last fall, state inspectors cited them for a 
four-hour delay in assessing one resident who was complaining of chest pain. Uh, the resident was eventually pronounced dead after finally being transported to a hospital. Uh, there is also uh, Rock Rapids Health Center in Lyon County. Uh, they were hit with $216,000 in fines in 2021. Uh, now, just in November of last year, uh, the home state inspectors went in. They substantiated 10 different complaints against the facility, but didn't actually issue any citations or impose any fines. At that time, the inspectors found the home, and the home had had four different administrators over the previous year. Uh, Long-distance phone service had been cut due to failure to pay bills. So they, ha they had some pretty serious issues going on. And then the third one was New London Specialty Care in Henry County. Uh, they were cited in November for 18 federal violations, including a failure to protect residents from sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. When you talk about facilities languishing on this list for a number of years, it sort of begs the question, uh, Clark, that, uh, you know, are there teeth here in, in getting these facilities improving, improving their quality? Uh, is this a, a good system uh, that we're experiencing here? Uh, it, it's not, to be frank. I mean, I've been covering uh, uh, quality of care issues in nursing homes, not just in Iowa, but but at elsewhere as well. And it's it's just not a good system. It doesn't lend itself to improvement. Now, people within the industry will tell you that that's because the system is set up to be too punitive. Uh, advocates for seniors will tell you it's not punitive enough that, uh, it, as in the case of one of these special focus facilities that I mentioned, inspectors can go in, substantiate 10 separate complaints, find a whole list of violations, but there's absolutely no penalty being imposed. Uh, in many other cases, the state may impose a fine, but it's imposed only on paper. The state fine is held in suspension to give federal officials a chance to impose a penalty, but there are cases where that doesn't happen either. So uh, it, it doesn't seem to be a system that lends itself uh, to improvement. And, and state, regulator, uh, state legislators have tried to address this by um, launching different initiatives that it would, would improve the quality of the workforce, uh, but those have gone off track in recent years as well. Mm -hmm. These three new facilities, these three facilities added newly to the list, uh, were there was room for them because three other Iowa facilities previously deemed eligible for this special focus status were removed. How were they removed? Did they improve, or, or what happened to them? Yeah, there there were some that improved, but there were also some that uh, simply closed down. Uh, the quality of care and the finances at the at the homes had dropped to the point where they simply shut down. And we are seeing uh, uh, a fair number of nursing homes in Iowa closed or filing for bankruptcy. Um, it ju just in the past year or two, uh, I, I've noticed uh, a couple of chains filing for bankruptcy that are based here in Iowa. Yeah. What can you tell us about the owners of these Iowa facilities on this federal special focus facilities list? 
Uh, well, very, very often. I can tell you generally, and, and not, not specifically with regard to these three facilities, but, but generally the nursing home operators in Iowa, uh, you'll have a uh, ownership is usually handled by a real estate company, and then uh, which may or may not even be headquartered in Iowa. And then uh, management of the facility will usually be um, contracted out to a separate entity. Uh, now, most of the nursing homes in Iowa now, I believe, are all for-profit. There, there are a fair number of nonprofits, some of which some people would argue are nonprofit in name only. Uh, if you look at their tax returns, they don't appear to be structured as a nonprofit, but they are tax-exempt. Uh, but, but it's much different from the days when we had uh, county homes and that kind of thing that were publicly operated. Th- those days are gone. Mm-hmm. Now, at a state level, what is being done here to up the quality in some of these problematic facilities? Uh, you write about the, the work of the Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals. Yeah, I, I think DIA is, uh, I think they would admit that they've been struggling. Now, now why they've been struggling um, is, is up for debate. But, uh, for example, last summer we reported that there were, at that point, 410 complaints that were pending against Iowa nursing homes that were at least 30 days old. And of those 410 pending complaints, 200 of them were more than 120 days old. So you can imagine the problem that inspectors face when they're going in to investigate uh, a complaint that a family member or a resident may have filed. If they're going in two or three months after the fact, there may be little or no evidence for them to collect uh, to substantiate a complaint. And then beyond that, even if the complaint is substantiated, uh, as mentioned in some of these previous cases, there may not be any penalty imposed. Uh, And then then separate from that, you know, the inspectors, their workload is such that uh, we wrote about a case recently where uh, a care facility resident here in Des Moines uh, suffocated uh, on food in bed, and the state inspectors didn't investigate because they were unaware of it until we had written about it. Um, so, so that there seems to be uh, a lack of communication to the department, and then once the department gets the information, uh, it, it has been struggling to uh, get up to speed in responding to those situations. Mm-hmm. Clark, as we finish up our, our time here, someone like you, you've you've delved into this, you, you've followed it for, for a long time. What would you say are your takeaways for those listening who have a loved one in, in a care facility in Iowa or maybe deciding on future care facilities for a loved one? Uh, well, the biggest thing is uh, I, I think people within a care facility uh, need family or friends to advocate uh, for them. Um, it's it's not enough to rely on uh, oversight by state inspectors. You know, when inspectors do go in, it's on a complaint basis, or it's every year. You know, one, once a year they'll they'll go in, even even without a complaint, to do an inspection. So you really need to have family or uh, friends checking on folks asking questions. Most nursing homes have resident advisory committees um, and family members can uh, participate in those. 
And at those meetings, at the meetings of these committees, residents get a chance to air out their grievances and explain what's going on in the night shift when the administrators aren't there. And, uh, and problems can get, get addressed that way. And, and they can also contact the long-term care ombudsman if they have any issues. But, uh, but the main thing is having someone in the facility to check on that specific resident on a pretty regular basis. Okay, Clark Kaufman, Deputy Editor of Iowa Capital Dispatch, some really important, valuable information you've been reporting on Iowa's care facilities, nursing homes. Clark, thank you for letting us check in with you. Thank you. Coming up after a short break, uh, I'll talk politics with Brianne Fannin-Steel of the Des Moines Register. Stay tuned. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. And we are back with more River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Still plenty to come. Glad you're on board over this noon hour. Uh, Later in the program, I'll talk with Iowa State University researchers about really an interesting project. I'm eager to hear more about it. One that aims to grow crops, vegetables, fruits, but also um, uh, have uh, areas for pollinators, raise bees amid, amid, Solar panels all in the same area. We'll learn about plans for this unique solar farm to be constructed here in Iowa in just a few minutes. But first, let's dig our hands into the fertile soil of current politics with Brianne Vanensteel, Des Moines Register Chief Politics Reporter. Hi, Brianne. Hi, how are you? I'm doing fine. I'm eager to talk with you, especially now that we've seen an upswing in activity here in Iowa focused on 2024. But first of all, let me ask you about your recent conversation with Governor Reynolds. You uh, had that uh, there on behalf of the Des Moines Register, uh, wrote about her role in your words as one of Iowa's biggest cheerleaders, particularly when it comes to the state's famed first-in-the-nation presidential caucuses. We'll get to that as well. But broadly, what were your aims going into that conversation? Yeah, well, it it struck me in in the conversations that I've been having with Iowa Republicans to start off the year, kind of getting ready for this busy caucus cycle, that everyone is is just very much, um, you know, awe maybe feels a little bit uh, like the right word. They feel a little bit in awe of Governor Kim Reynolds and, and coming off of her her huge victory. It was almost 19 percentage points that she defeated Democrat uh, Deidre Dejeer. And she came into the start of this legislative session, um, really leaning into the agenda that she campaigned on, moving through the school choice uh, plan uh, to, to use some public funds for, for private schools, uh, for families who want to send their children there. She moved that through very quickly and really came out, um, came out of the gates, uh, you know, moving her agenda through very boldly, very aggressively. And so Iowa Republicans just kept telling me, you know, 
they're so proud of what Kim Reynolds has done. They really love her as governor. I would go to events across the state where she's with, you know, some national politicians and she's the one getting the biggest applause in some of these rooms. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to sit down with her and, and see, you know, how she's thinking about this moment because the national spotlight is turning to Iowa you know, once again for the Iowa caucuses, and she's going to have um, she's going to have a big role if she chooses to. And I think I think even if she doesn't, she's going to be incredibly sought after in these caucuses. So I wanted to get a sense of how she's thinking about this and and what that means for her, both as the governor of Iowa and for what future political ambitions she might have. Yeah, we here in Iowa digest regular news, political news from the governor and the GOP-controlled legislature on a regular basis. But you, you mentioned sort of her profile um, r- rising uh, among Republicans nationally. What is your sense, especially since Iowa did see a red wave in the midterms? Uh, unlike Republicans nationally, there were other states. Florida, for instance, had a red wave as well. How is she seen now since the midterms? Uh, by uh, national Republican leaders? I think she's really seen her profile raised nationally. You know, um, she, as you said, is one of, is the leader of one of the few states that did see a red wave, was able to to get Republicans kind of elected up and down the ballot. And so that, that got a lot of attention. And then certainly after moving her, her education agenda through the legislature, I mean, she was booked solid on Fox News for, you know, a good week or so talking to national Republicans about this agenda. And, you know, um, she's been appointed to lead the National Governors Association, which is a big role that will give her exposure um, across the party uh, nationally as well. And so she's just really kind of had these moments that have elevated her profile. And certainly we're going to see her on stage with all of these presidential candidates as they come through the state. She was introducing Nikki Haley last night and all of, you know, all of the Iowa TV cameras are there and then all of the national ones. If they're not there now, they will be soon to to pick up what she's saying as well. So she's going to have have an even bigger profile, I think, through this year. And people have already started to speculate, you know, does she want to be a vice presidential candidate? Does she want an appointment in in somebody's administration after this? And, you know, she told me in our conversation that she's really focused on Iowa, that she's not looking for that. That's not what she wants right now. But, you know, things things can certainly change. And that would be a difficult uh, a difficult thing to say no to if somebody were to come asking. Right. And at this point in the process, isn't it, Brianne, sort of a, a standard answer to stay clear of a, a commitment until you see what's further down the road, right? Of course. I think it would be very strange to hear a politician say, yes, I hope to be somebody's vice presidential candidate. But, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, we, we ask and it's good to kind of hear where her thoughts are in the moment. And, and I think she is really focused on, you know, Republicans have a big job, right, to make sure that yeah. the caucuses run smoothly, that things, uh, you know, go well compared to how, how things went with the Democratic caucuses in 2020 to make sure that they can hold on to that first in the nation status. So I think she yeah, is very the, focused on making sure that that happens. I see. I read one of the mo- uh, most provocative, I thought, questions you asked her was uh, if she would ever weigh in, as uh, you pointed to Governor Terry Branstad doing this in 2016, urging Iowans not to vote for a candidate. In, 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 that, in that case, it was Ted Cruz uh, because of his stance on ethanol. Uh, she is staying out of the fray, at least what she says. Yeah, you know, if if uh, you know, listeners remember Terry Branstad ahead of the 2016 caucuses basically said 
Iowa Republicans should caucus for anyone but Ted Cruz because of his anti-ethanol standpoint. And they, they didn't particularly listen. Ted Cruz did win the Republican caucuses that year. But Terry Branstad tried to to step in and, and offer his thoughts there. And so I asked the governor, you know, if you're not endorsing, would you try and shape the the conversation in a, another way, maybe like that? And she said, no, that she thinks it's best to leave it up to Iowans. But, you know, I think regardless of of whether she makes an endorsement, she's clearly influential in this process. You know, when she introduced Nikki Haley in Urbandale last night, um, she was able to talk about her personal friendship with the former governor of South Carolina. She was able to talk about her on a really personal level because they do have a years-long friendship. She was able to talk about her servant's heart and her tenacity and the, the fact that people shouldn't underestimate her. And so if you have a relationship with Iowa's governor, that clearly can pay dividends in something like an introduction. And I do expect the governor to introduce all of these candidates at some point, right? But I think it's a matter of, of um, you know, to, to what level of detail does she feel comfortable sharing about you? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, she has campaigned with the former president, Donald Trump. What is your sense of her political relationship with the former president now? Or uh, how would she like Iowa Republicans and independents to view her connection with Donald Trump going forward? Well, I think she would say that she still has a very good relationship with the former president. He was here campaigning on behalf of of her and other Iowa Republicans as recently as, as November of last year, just before the midterms. And so he's he's been on the ground in Iowa a lot doing uh, events and campaigning for Iowa Republicans. And so I think I think that connection definitely remains, even as they've had to take a little bit of a step back to say, we're not going to endorse him. We're not going to endorse anyone this cycle, this cycle to protect uh, the integrity of the caucuses. So I think um, I think she wants probably Iowa Republicans to know that um Donald Trump is still one of the many candidates that she she likes, that she has a good relationship with, and that they should consider. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined us, uh, my guest for this portion of the program, Brianne Fannin-Steele, Des Moines Register Chief Politics uh, Reporter. Uh, let's broaden out a little bit uh, here, of course, with the 2024 race for the Republican nomination heating up early days, more than uh, 20 months before the general election, a year before the caucuses. And to, to clarify here for those who are perhaps not steeped in politics 24-7, as you are, Brianne, uh, the, the Republican caucus is not affected. They will be taking place in a year. That's exactly right. The The Democrats have reordered their presidential nominating cal- calendar, putting South Carolina first, moving Iowa back in line, but Republicans plan to move forward with the same calendar that they've always used with Iowa at the front. Yeah. OK, so how would you characterize this election cycle at this point uh, where we are one year away from the Iowa caucuses for Republicans? If we think back to 2015, um, there were I don't know how many. Perhaps you have a number. How many were in the race at that time? But very few officially in the race. Pence not in the race. Only uh, Donald Trump and now Nikki Haley in the race. How would you characterize where we are? Are we sort of most candidates with potential there doing a a wait and see? What are they waiting for? Well, I think if you look back to the 2015-16 cycle, at this point, there were some 
kind of major Iowa events, we call them cattle calls, where every every uh, candidate or potential candidate is basically invited and, and given a spot to speak. And so we had we had several of those, I think, earlier in the process last year that maybe drew some candidates out more quickly. But I think this cycle, you know, there's a lot of activity that's still happening behind this behind the scenes. And even in the last two weeks, it feels like a switch has flipped saying, you know, this is caucus season and everybody is starting to get ready and doing a mm-hmm. lot more of that behind the scenes work that's necessary. Um, but I think, you know, you also look at, um, you know, Donald Trump in the race and many of them don't necessarily want to give him a target, right? Uh, you know, they know that once they declare, they become a target of, of his attacks and maybe maybe think that it's um, better strategically to kind of wait a little bit to start um, to start that process that, you know, getting into the race in the spring might be just as beneficial. I think we're all waiting for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to make his campaign official. And he he's he's more or less indicated that he doesn't plan to get into the race until the Florida legislative session has ended, which is is not until later in the spring. So I think people are kind of looking at that as very much a, um, a key marker in the timeline here. Yeah. When we see how Nikki Haley has made her entrance after declaring her candidacy just a few days ago, do you have see indications about, you know, this question that's been asked for months now, how Republican candidates, uh, hopefuls uh, for the White House, will navigate the waters with Trump in them? Uh, does she have a successful, do you think, a, a promising plan? And I mean, she, she's been pointing to age and, and in, in one fell swoop, she's, I guess, pointing to Biden and Trump as well, right? Right. And, and perhaps other Republicans. Exactly right. Yeah. Right. It's an interesting tact to take in, in Iowa where Senator Chuck Grassley was just reelected at, at age 89. Um, but she has said, you know, we need a competency test for uh, politicians over age 75. We need term limits in Congress. And she's, she's kind of framed everything around this idea of a new generation of leadership. She's, she's in her 50s. She's much younger than, uh, than Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And so I think she's trying to say we need to look forward and not in the past. And so the question of, of how and how she's going to navigate this this Trump uh, factor is an interesting one. And I don't know that she's got all the kinks worked out. She was asked last night at, at her event, you know, why should Iowa Republicans choose you over Donald Trump? And she said, you know, she pointed to age again and said, I don't think you need to be 80 to go to Washington, D.C. I think we need to look past the status quo and move forward. I And she hinted that perhaps you know, some leaders of the past, like Donald Trump, may not uh, may, may be a bit of a turnoff to some voters who Republicans will need to win over if they want to defeat uh, pres- presumably Joe Biden in 2024. So she had an answer that she was ready to give. But it, it's it's difficult, right, because she also wants to claim the accomplishments of the Trump administration, which she served under as the ambassador to the United Nations. So she she took great pains to say Donald Trump is a friend. He did great things for the country, but it's time to look forward. So yeah. my my sense is that there is a good chunk of, of the Iowa Republican uh, caucus going electorate that is interested in seeing who else is out there beyond Donald Trump. Right. And early polls uh, show Donald Trump in double digits, Ron DeSantis double digits, Nikki Haley in single digits. Uh, uh, but would you say at this point that uh, Donald Trump is still the favorite to win the GOP nomination? I think at this point he is he seems to be the front runner. Um, 
because we haven't seen anyone else come in and, and show otherwise, right? We haven't seen uh, Governor DeSantis in the state. We haven't seen, um, you know, Nikki Haley run enough of a campaign to get get some kind of traction. So at this point, I haven't seen anything that suggests that Donald Trump wouldn't be the favorite right now. He has um, he has a really high bar to clear for himself. But at the same time, we've got a full year and, and people who follow uh, caucus politics in this state know how candidates tend to rise and fall based on on the news cycle, based on on what may be in the news. When I first got here in 2015, you know, Scott Walker was the hot big thing on the Republican side. Everyone thought he might be the nominee, Mm -hmm. Jeb Mm -hmm. Bush. So, you know, things (laughs) can change pretty dramatically between now and caucus day. Yeah. Uh, Often in politics, uh, lanes are spoken about within a a party. Um, Where do you see, do do you define lanes for Republican candidates? We have, I think, what's been called a Trump lane, and that includes, of course, Donald Trump, but also Ron DeSantis uh, being very much the populist populist that uh, Donald Trump is. Uh, Help us understand what lanes you see there and, and who's presently occupying them. Well, I think we definitely see kind of the Trump Magdalene, right, um, which certainly has Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. And I think we'll see, you know, other people kind of try and straddle that lane as well. You have more um, more moderate, more centrist Republicans, people who are clearly trying to be the anti-Trump people, like maybe uh, Arkansas, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, um, Larry Hogan from Maryland, you might see some of the, those folks come in and make a very explicit pitch to be the the not Trump candidate. But I think really broadly, this election is shaping up to be the Trump candidate and the not Trump candidate. I think we all expect Donald Trump to move forward in, in some big capacity and who will be the person who rises up to be able to to challenge him, you know, if someone is able to rise up and challenge him. So in a lot of ways, I think the the lanes are condensed this cycle into, you know, the Trump lane and the not Trump lane. Mm-hmm. We have just a, in a minute or less, but you, you wrote a recent article on Iowa native and University of Iowa graduate Carrie Lake recent, recently visiting Iowa. She narrowly lost her 2022 campaign for governor of Arizona to a, a Democrat, Katie Hobbs. Um, what's your take on Lake's goals and visiting Iowa, her prospects for 2024? Well, Iowa is definitely the place you come to to raise your profile. So whether, you know, whether she wants to be somebody's vice president, there's been talk about whether she might run for the U.S. Senate. Um, I think Iowa helps you achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. And and so we could see more of Carrie Lake? She said to expect more of her, so uh, we'll take her at her word. Okay. And is... uh, Biden, he's not declared yet, but is he the Democrats' best prospect for holding on to the White House in 2024, do you think, in a few words? I think at this point, everybody expects President Biden to run again. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how that matches up. Brianne Fannin-Steele, thank you very much. Des Moines Register Chief Politics Reporter. Thank you so much, Brianne. Thank you. Coming up after a short break, I'll talk with Iowa State University researchers about their project. It's one that aims to grow crops, vegetables, fruits, uh, also raise bees on the same plots where there are solar panels. How will that work? We'll learn about this unique solar farm, the plans for it in just a moment. It's River to River from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion. 
the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. A new Iowa State University research project will explore how to grow crops and keep bees among, yes, among solar panels. It's funded by a grant from the U.S. Department of Energy, and most of the research will be conducted a few miles south of Ames. That's where Alliant Energy plans to begin construction in a short time on a 1.35-megawatt solar farm. Joining us, uh, two of the researchers on this project, Uh, Ajay Nair is Associate Professor in ISU's Department of Horticulture. Ajay, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Ben. Good afternoon. Ann Kimber with us as well, Director of ISU's Electric Power Research Center. Ann, welcome to you. Thank you for having me. Very exciting things uh, in in reading about this. I'm trying to picture it. But first of all, describe the the, the project. Anne, could you kick it off here? Um, What will be happening south of Ames in a short time? Well, in a short time, they'll be breaking ground on a new uh, solar array that Alliant will be constructing on Iowa State land. And this is a really interesting solar array because it's going to have four different arrangements of solar panels. Um, And they're doing that so that we can conduct this uh, study of growing crops under solar panels. So there's going to be two sets of fixed tilt arrays, one one that's higher than the other one. And then there are going to be two sections where there's going to be single axis tracking And those are going to be at two different heights. So we're basically going to have four different treatments of solar panels that we can experiment with agriculture beneath them. Mm -hmm. And how how big is this area we're talking about where these four sets of panels are? It's roughly about 12 acres. And that includes some open area with no solar array that we can kind of use as a control. Um, So we'll Mm -hmm. be growing crops under and between the panels. And then we'll be growing crops with no panels above them so that we can compare and contrast production. Uh, Ajay, talk about the the horticulture side of this, because what is the challenge here? You want panels to coexist with plants in the ground. So what are the challenges that you see? Uh, So Ben, one of the key uh, factors that influence, influence plant growth is sunlight. So when we talk about vegetable crops, they need full sun. And so uh, when somebody hears that we are going to grow crops underneath the panels, between the panels, that's the first question that comes to everybody's mind. Uh, that being said, uh, there are cases, or there could be cases, uh, issues where you know, we might be getting too much of sun uh, and, and there's too much of heat stress going on while growing a crop here in Iowa. Uh, think of months like August, uh, July, when it could be really hot. So having the solar panels... Uh, uh, could actually benefit the crops by reducing heat stress. So that is something which we are going to investigate uh, by uh, growing uh, different vegetables and fruit crops underneath. So that's one uh, one thing we will find. The second is, you know, what is the overall feasibility in terms of production practices and, and all the you know tools and equipment which we use in commercial vegetable production? Uh, can we integrate those tools within such a system where we can go and till the plot or maybe lay the plastic mulch, trellis our tomatoes, or, you know, go with a harvester 
uh, cultivate the soils for weed management. So uh, those are, I would say, two major things. You know, light is one. Uh, definitely light affects other factors like other microclimate factors like humidity, uh, rainfall, soil moisture. And the other is just the feasibility, whether this could be done. Yeah. Ajay, do we know what, what crops, what fruits, vegetables will be grown on this plot yet? Uh, yes. Uh, so we uh, did submit a Department of Energy grant, which got funded. So we are, we are very happy. You know, Alliance is a great partner on that project. Uh, we are going to evaluate uh, 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 broccoli, uh, which is a cool season vegetable. So we want to see what happens when uh, a, a crop is planted, let's say, middle of April. Uh, we also want to know what happens to some of the uh, warm season vegetables. So we are going to tr- uh, try summer squash. Uh, it's, a, it's a vegetable that is grown widely here in the state. People are aware of it. They know how to cook with it and all that. And then, of course, one of the staple crops, uh, a, a long-duration summer crop, and that's pepper. Uh, so we will evaluate uh, broccoli, squash, pepper. And in, in the case of fruits, again, two uh, classic crops that uh, are grown here, can be grown here. Uh, one is strawberry. Uh, that, that is uh, my, my colleague, Dr. Suzanne Slack. She will be focusing on that. She's the fruit specialist. And the other crop is raspberry. So those are the five crops we will evaluate uh, within the system. Mm -hmm. Back to you, Ann Kimber. The area that is emerging here has been given the name agrivoltaics, if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Introduce us to this area. Well, you are pronouncing it right. And agrivoltaics has been under study uh, by the Department of Energy since about 2015, and um, it's broadly the area that you could grow something in association with solar panels. So that could be, there could be greenhouses with solar on the roof and, you're, and that's the agrivoltaic system. Or it could be pollinator habitats. Uh, maybe you're establishing ecosystem services by having pollinator habitats to attract maybe endangered bees and other insects under solar arrays, uh, that's another area. Or you could be doing um, what Ajay and others are doing in the field, which is to grow actual vegetable crops for production. And I wanted to say that this is the first of its kind in the Midwest um, Mm. to start a project from scratch to do this with this many eyes, uh, not only the research eyes of of the eager Iowa State researchers, but also the eyes of of the growers in the state and the beekeepers in the state and more broadly the public to come and see us uh, developing the site, what it takes, how the site evolves over time. It's a really, really exciting project. I was thinking about Iowa State's motto, which is science with practice. And boy, boy, we're really doing that here, you know, um, and everybody's going to get to uh, to see this as we develop it. So it, it's it's a great project. And the other thing that's great about it is that it's building on research that's been done in other parts of the country, but it is unique um, in a sense to our Midwest um, climate. And and uh, so I, I think in that way, we're unique, but we're building on, we're standing on shoulders of other people who've tried to do this before. The other interesting thing is that there are climate microclimate factors that we don't know how are going to, they're not only are they going to affect the crop production, but they also could affect, it's possible, but we don't know the answer to this, where their strawberry production under our arrays somehow benefits 
solar production as well. So we're not yeah. only studying crop yeah. production, but we're going to look at the PV production as well. Yeah. Ajay, talk about what Anne just mentioned, microclimate. So what I think she's referring to, expand on that as a horticulturalist, uh, under these panels, there is a microclimate, and that's what we're referring to, and we're, we're trying to create little climates, different climates under these panels, and there'll be four different types of them. Yeah, so Anne is correct, you know, but as the name suggests, microclimate. So this will be kind of the climate that is surrounding the crop or the plant near the soil surface where the foliage is. And that is very different than what you would find under an open field condition where you have direct sunlight, more wind blowing. Uh, so we need to monitor this microclimate and see what is the amount of light intensity that is coming uh, within the system. What's the relative humidity? Because if the humid humidity is too high, there are chances of more diseases in such systems. Uh, we would like to monitor what is happening with the soil in terms, in terms of soil temperature, soil moisture. You know, are, are the panels, you know, uh, holding more snow? And then as the snow melts, it falls, and maybe it's more damp and more wet, and that could also lead to diseases. Or is it helpful to have that moisture? And one big factor is the shade, which these panels will... Uh, will uh, have on the crop. So too much of shade, too less of a shade, or just optimum shade. So we will be measuring all those uh, factors, and they are all clumped together in this term called microclimate. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, Ann Kimber, um, on the electric power side of this equation, what what will be the biggest uh, challenges so when we look at the electric power, electric power making that worth it, uh, the electric, electric power generation here? Right. Well, People develop solar projects because they think that or they're they're aiming to have economically viable renewable energy production, right? I mean, free, the, the fuel is free. Let's try and do this in the most economic way possible. The question is, can we add additional value streams from these projects that that make the projects economically viable even if the panel height is is taller? If it's a taller panel height, there you have to build in some structural reinforcements to keep, you know, very high winds from blowing over the panels. So there's some there, are, you know, economic trade-offs between the the standard industry panel height, which is lower, and what Alliant is is doing here. Um, and we we don't know what those trade how those economic trade-offs are are going to play out. You know, that's another mm -hmm. really interesting thing to study here. Yeah. And what is the timeline here? Construction on the solar farm uh, to be completed this fall, I understand. And then and then the horticulture research begins when? Um, so we might even we're still discussing this. We might even still put up um, beehives this summer. It's going to depend on the, con the construction workers and how we work that out with Alliant. Um, but we're expecting that the the array will be in commercial production sometime early in 2024 and we will be doing we may be doing some ground preparation we may do some cover crop or something like that yet this fall but yeah. probably the first full season of fruit and vegetable growing will be will be next year yeah ajay talk a little bit about the pollinators here the bees i assume butterflies here how uh, what are the concerns there about their integration, of course, very important for the growth of some crops, of course. 
Sure. So uh, my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Matt O'Neill, he's the entomologist on this uh, project, and he will be handling uh, that aspect of research. But primarily what he and us as a team are interested in is to evaluate different types of pollinator mixes. So there are mixes that are pretty diverse, that have legumes, grass, flowering plants. So I think of, you know, a more diverse mix versus something which, you know, typically would be just a grass that is seeded underneath these panels or between the panels to uh, limit soil erosion. And uh, these two vegetations will uh, impact or affect the bees that are out there because they are uh, going out there and, you know, looking for pollen and, uh, and coming back to the hive. So the, uh, it could affect uh, maybe the amount of honey that is produced or even the health of the bees. So uh, those are some things which we want to evaluate with this, having different diverse mixes, pollinator mixes, and how that affects bee health and honey production. Yeah. Uh, Ajay, do, do we know what how bees will behave here? I mean, they're used to being around structures. We have beehives all over the place. Will will they think about these panels? Do we do we imagine any differently than they do other structures? Yeah, that's a very good question, Ben. I mean, uh, these panels, I'm sure they're reflecting light. There's a lot of glare that might happen, and I don't know whether it affects their flight. But obviously, as a as, uh, uh, Anne mentioned, this is something novel. We, go, we are going to test whether such an integration can happen. At the horticulture research station here on campus at Iowa State, you know, we have beehives there and they have you know, a lot of other flowers and pollens to go and forage. But something under a panel, we actually don't know what, what that uh, production would look like. Do we get the same amount of honey as we get in a typical you know, hive or, or less? So, uh, so, and, and we don't know. So we are, we are going to test that yeah. with this project. And I know you're eager to to pursue this with uh, Alliant Energy. Uh, how will talk a little bit more about how this partnership will work? For instance, how did it all start? It uh, start. Where was the germ here? Uh, well, the germ really. So I should backtrack a little bit and just say that Alliant is a member of the Electric Power Research Center, as are many other utilities in the state, including the City of Ames, which also has a solar array and um, is also. Part of this project, uh, we're going to be looking at pollinator mixes and, and beehives at the City of Ames Array as well. But Alliant and Iowa State were already developing this idea of a what's called a customer-hosted solar array um, at at on Iowa State land. And then we saw the opportunity to apply for a DOE Department of Energy. Um, Solar Energy Technologies Office grant to study agrivoltaics. And that was when the fun began because then Alliant and Iowa State and people from many different departments at Iowa State started discussing how we could pull this proposal together, who, uh, who could our partners be. And that's when we started thinking about how we should structure the, just the, the whole research questions. What could we do at the site? And then, um, so Alliant was on us uh, or with us on the proposal to DOE, and uh, and we were so excited when we got this grant to actually carry out some of these ideas that we really had only been able to dream about doing. So it's been yeah. a, it's been a really great project so far. I can hear I can hear the excitement in your voice and you and uh, Ajay's uh, voices. Uh, we have uh, about a minute left, but e- each of you quickly on the the future vision of how crops and high tech may coexist in the same fields in the future. Ajay, what do you see in our, in, in our future five, ten years that may prove to be really an answer to a lot of uh, wishes? 
Absolutely. So, you know, renewable energy is something uh, which has a lot of promise. And if we can integrate that with uh, like a general commercial stream of growing vegetables, I think that will be a win-win. I also have to quickly emphasize here is that there are several partners and stakeholders who helped us uh, while we were, you know, uh, develop our hypothesis and design the plan and what we grow, the national lab, uh, renewable energy lab. We have Global Greens, Practical Farmers of Iowa, Iowa Food and Vegetable Growth Association, many PV energy partners, you know, in, uh, and so they all came together uh, uh, to help us to design this. And the vision, and we all sh share a common vision. We also have social science as a foundation of this project because we want to hear from Iowa landowners, stakeholders, what their interests are, what their concerns are. Mm. And, uh, and I see, uh, uh, again, as Anne mentioned, this is an interesting project. We have so many different disciplines, participating stakeholders aligned, and uh, we, yep. have, we are really looking forward you we know, to find solutions. We will have to check back with you. What an exciting project. Uh, Ajay uh, Nair, Nair um, of, of the Department of Horticulture at ISU and Kimber, Director of ISU's Electric Power Research Center. Thank you for giving us a glimpse into a, a possible future of fruit, vegetables, and power. Thank you. Thank you Thank so you much. for having us. River to River today, produced by Danny Gear, our executive producer, Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Politics Day tomorrow. Tune in again. Thanks for now.